welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Today we interview Julia Helwich, a professor in the Department of Political Science about campaign advertisements. Julia, how's it going today? Doing very well, thank you. Um, now you are a professor of political science, correct? I am. Um, can you just tell us maybe you know, some of the classes that you might teach, what your expertise is in? Sure. So I do American politics, and primarily I teach classes on institutions, um, so legislative process, presidency. I also teach campaigns on democracy, and I teach our intro class for majors every semester. Um, well, it's politics season. Uh, if anybody has you know, probably turned on the TV, opened their mailbox, they might be bombarded with um, political ads. I think that's what we wanted to talk to you today. I mean, are political ads effective? Yes and no. It really depends on how you do it. You gotta have a strategy in mind uh, when you're putting these out there. You know, I've heard before that it takes anywhere between like 16 to 24 uh, individual mail pieces, mailers, what, what they're called in politics. Um, takes 24 of those to actually get someone to vote or that's their sort of success rate. I mean, what does that tell you about advertisement? Is it more quantity over quality? Um, again, it kind of depends. The quantity thing is really difficult because you also don't want to oversaturate your voters. Um, people get really tired, and that's in part why it kind of takes so many because the first few ones are not paying attention, and then they get annoyed, and then they're actually getting the message after a while. So it's a kind of quantity and quality thing. You know, I think that it might be more mythology than anything else, but you hear about Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? And we kind of have this notion that you know, campaigns are decided on the issues, um, where ads themselves are generally biographic, right? They rarely take policy positions. Why is that? Well, in part, I think that's definitely myth. Um, we've always had this kind of campaign material. Um, I think today it's just more spendy, primarily, and, and yes, there's more oversaturation. Um, I do think that there are some things that aren't the issues, and that's also going to play into what kind of ads that you're doing. Like, you don't want to do negative trait ads, so you don't want to, like, slam your opponent on their personality, but you want to talk about your own personality and what a wonderful person you are. Um, and so that's a little bit difficult um, in terms of like your strategy again. Um, the other part I think is because a lot of the issues are already ingrained. So our party labels and a lot of the issues that uh, we primarily think about, the ones that we prioritize, are already fairly set in our minds. And so it's really gonna come down to who does the best job of representing me and who's the guy or gal that I can trust. You know, it reminds me of uh, you know, what they used to say about George W. Bush, President um, Bush, that he was someone that you could have a beer with, right? Yeah. How important, I guess, is that for the regular voter that they can relate to the candidate that you know might represent them? Hugely important. Um, as much as all of us are going to say, it's all about the issues. Well, once we've decided on the issues, then it comes down to that personality. And that's going to depend on not only a vote choice, meaning what party we're going to vote for, but it's really going to depend on if we're going to turn out or not. Like, I might identify as Republican or Democrat, but I might not care to, like, actually go and vote for the person if I don't think that they're trustworthy and someone who really understands me and someone who's going to represent us well and someone who's just a likable person. Um, do you have a favorite political ad? Um, 
Yes. <laughs> Can I ask you to, to uh, tell us about it? Why you thought maybe it was effective or, or what? Well, there are, actually I have two. So I have one at the presidential level. This is kind of everyone's most well-known, I think, uh, presidential ad, Lyndon B. Johnson's 1964 Daisy ad. It's quintessential. It was only aired once. It is horrifying. This is the ad where a little girl is counting the pieces of the flower and is counting down um, and then we have this like atom bomb go off and they're like you must either vote or perish into the night and it's just kind of really terrifying and it was aired right before the election only once because they knew it was so intense so that's one the other one is actually on the whole different spectrum for county commissioner this guy named uh, Gerald Dotry um, who ran and it's this awesome ad where um, it's primarily his wife actually talking about how her husband Gerald just keeps droning on about really mundane things and looking at like cable cars and thinking about budgets and all this kind of fiscal stuff and it shows them having neighbors over for dinner and they're just kind of rolling their eyes and everybody just gets bored and then at the end she says re-elect Gerald please <laughs> No, I think I'm familiar with that ad. I mean, I, I thought it was genius because obviously for, you know, the the position that that person was running for, right, it's one that doesn't draw a lot of attention. And so how how much, you know, you think of the old adage, you know, no press is bad press. I can't think that that is always true in politics. I would think that there are some times where bad press is bad press. But how much of it is just... I, you know, name ID, awareness, things of that nature. A lot of it's about name ID. So you got to drill the name in. And in fact, we've seen several times where um, candidates, especially these down ballot candidates where voters don't have a lot of information, where if you have a name that is well known in the community or even like a celebrity name, you're going to get a vote bump just because of that name recognition. Hmm. You know, do negative campaign ads work? I mean, it's something where that's what people always complain about, right? They, I think it's like there are two seasons that people complain about when it comes to advertising. Um, you know, around the holidays, if, if you're advertising maybe for Christmas too early, and obviously when the political ads start too early. I mean, if if they weren't effective, why would candidates continue to do them, right? I mean, they, they have to be effective to a degree. Yeah, there, so there's some mixed scholarship on this. Um, we know that they can be effective. It just depends on when you're doing it. So you have to be strategic. So you don't want to do too many at once. You kind of want to space them out. Um, ideally, well, ideally, it sounds awkward. But ideally, if you really want to get your opponents, you should do it right before the election so that they don't have a chance to respond to them. Um, and also, never, ever, ever should you do a negative ad on a person's traits. You can talk about how this person voted no on an issue or is not supportive of an issue that's generally popular, um, something like that. But you shouldn't talk about their traits like they're just not a trustworthy person. That's not going to gain you anything. And especially, you should never attack that person's family. You know, I want to get into maybe some of the changes um, that have occurred with political advertising just the last few years. You know, you hear the moniker fake news um, often, right? And it kind of begs this question on whether or not political organizations should just make up their own media organizations and bill them as authentic and credible and independent um, or pour more money into advertisements that people know, um, you know, are biased. How has, I guess, online advertisement, the invention of fake news, how has that changed the calculus um, candidates and campaigns use w when they decide how to spend their money? 
Well, a few different things. One, it's made voters more skeptical of any information. You know, I think a lot of these things, whether it comes down to voting or becoming more a more informed voter or anything like that, takes a lot of resources from a person. Um, and when you're now adding on that you might not be able to get credible information from what seems like a reputable source, you're adding on more barriers to getting appropriate information. And so in my view, it's going to make more people tune out because we just don't have the resource. And whether that's actual education or time or money or even things like interests and efficacy, if we start chipping away at those parts that make us want to go vote, it's going to be much more difficult to, to end up doing that. You know, much is made of the Citizens United decision having a large impact on dark money coming in um, yeah. to political campaign and elections. You know, it's one of those where there seemed to be so much money in political campaigns and elections before Citizens United. Is it the type of situation where you know the money might be more clouded, but it's simply maybe moved directions on who spends it? I mean, is more money being spent or, or not? I mean, you tell me. Yeah, there's more money being spent for sure. Um, and the money is being spent in dark money ways, so ways that we don't see it. And we're seeing more issue ads. Now, according to Citizens United, you can't, as an issue-based group, collaborate with the candidate. That said, first of all, we know some of that happens. Um, and secondly, some of that happens because the candidates are so well known or because we can anticipate their positions and so on. Um, and issue-based ads actually go under very, I would say, limited scrutiny. So if you look at the Buckley versus Vallejo, um, I think 1967, I want to say, I can't remember the year, um, court case that actually defined what an issue-based ad looks like. It's just very simple. As long as you don't say vote for or elect or something like that, you can have an issue-based ad. So you can talk about um, some candidate and what they're doing or some candidate and what they're not doing. And then as long as you're tying that to some issue, and it can be as simple as we hope to reduce the deficit, and you don't use the words vote for or elect someone, um, and there are seven magic words, then you're in the clear. And so it's very easy to spend a lot of money say, saying very simple messages. You know, and the lines are blurred in all sorts of ways. I mean, I think of um, an ad, and I, I hesitate to get into it because I, I think I watched it one time, but it, it was kind of an ad that was poking fun of a candidate who had posted essentially what in media parlance we know as B-roll of themselves. So it's just nice. Uh, you know, footage of them waving, uh, maybe shaking hands at a parade, maybe at a, um, you know, nursing home, talking to um, older folks. Um, and they kind of poke fun at it because it's, it's obvious that the, you know, intent of the B-roll was to put it on YouTube and hopefully have a large issue advocacy organization, right, maybe take that uh, um, and use that footage. I mean, how much coordination is allowed? Well, it's difficult to say um, because there really should be no coordination. Um, that said, if you're just making it available and someone else uses it, that's really hard to say is that coordination or not. And ultimately, the FEC won't really do much about it. They don't have a lot of enforcement and they're not going to do a lot to enforce this. They don't, they don't have, they have authority, but they just don't have the mechanisms in place or the willingness to do it or something. Um, and so a lot of these things keep happening. Um, again, I don't want to say that they're collaborating, but we know that a lot of this is kind of happening behind the scenes. Um, 
you know, to, to maybe kind of wrap this up and bring us, bring us back home here for a second, why should we stay engaged? I mean, politics are so important. We still have really terrible um, voting turnout levels, especially when you compare us, you know, internationally to other democracies. Um, you know, if these ads are effective, they might not be that effective, right? Because they don't get that many people to vote. I mean, why should people, um, despite the ads, despite the shenanigans that occur with politics that are kind of an inherent part of the game, why should they go out there and vote? Voting is quintessential to being a citizen, in my view. Um, it's, you know, the only opportunity that we really have to directly have an impact, and particularly on things that we might not vote on, like referenda and things like that, that are really difficult. I do want to give out the point, though, that, again, there are a lot of barriers out there to voting. It is actually rather difficult, and part of the reason why we have lower turnout in this country compared to other countries is because we have greater barriers to voting. Um, some of those are specific, like, electoral laws that don't allow people um, to vote, and some of those are just things that are just institutionally more difficult, like the fact that we have voting on a Tuesday when everybody's voting, I'm sorry, when everybody's working. Um, so there are a lot of institutional barriers that are just challenging. Um, but I really hope that people go out there and not only just vote, but get themselves a bit informed and become part of their community. I think the more you are part of your community and you feel some sense of efficacy in the place that you live and the society that we have, the more willing you're going to be to actually participate directly. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us today and educating us a little bit about some of these ads that we might start seeing here. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.